Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, hello and welcome to Cross Section. I am joined this week again by Alicia and Danny Webster has replaced Phil Knox. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> Danny, you're back. <laughs> Good to be back. Good to be back. Yeah. You haven't really replaced Phil. Phil replaced you, and it's great to have the the the, uh, the original faithful slate back again. And uh, this week we're going to be looking at a number of stories, obviously because of what's in the news. We are going to be looking at what is happening in Israel and Palestine. We're coming to that in a moment. But to be fair to Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour Party conference, we touched last week. Conservative Party conference. Sir Keir's speech has kind of got lost a bit inevitably in the news this week. But we do want to talk about it, and we do want to be fair to him. So we're going to turn first to that story. And uh, Danny, Labour Party conference, tough week for them, getting lost in the news, but at the same time, they have been sending out their messages. What have you thought of what you've been hearing from the conference? Well, I think the Labour Party will be quite happy with how the week went. I, it was a largely no drama event. I think the high point of drama was the the glitter descending on uh, Sir Keir as he was delivering his keynote speech on Tuesday. And to be honest, I think they'll be happy if that's the the most kind of drama-related part of the conference, they'll have considered that job done. Um, their aim in this conference was to present themselves as a potential government-in-waiting. They wanted to be seen as serious. They wanted to be seen as tackling the major issues. Rachel Reeves did quite a lot of that work with her speech earlier in the week on the economy and what the government would do around that. I, I think the fact that we can look at the week and not really think that much about the policy announcements, they'll be quite happy about that. For them, it's as much as anything about the mood music around it. Are they serious? Are they disciplined? Are they ready? And actually, I wonder if the conflict in Israel actually helped them to stay on that core message. And it also meant that there wasn't so so many journalists hunting around for a little story to fill some pages because the news was so full. Yeah, so good result for them in one sense where it came across well for them, as you said, it's about tone. Alicia, reflections on the party conference and, and the news that came out from it? Yeah, I definitely agree with Danny that it's, it's a fairly positive conference. There was many articles uh, and kind of outlets commenting on the vibe being one of real joy and laughter and a real enthusiasm, always referencing a cue for someone's speech or a cue for a fringe event. So there's definitely interest and appetite. I think one phrase or one type of language that came out from his speech I thought was interesting is this language of a decade of national renewal. I think that language of renewal has been a key theme within the church this year uh, and the need for a renewal in the church and a renewal in our nation, a sense of God's kingdom truly coming into pass. Now, I don't think Keir Starmer was going that heavy <laughs> with uh, that kind of spiritual language, but I think it's a recognition of a need for change and a shift and him being the custodian or, or, or bringing or protecting Britain's future and a need for renewal. I thought that kind of language was kind of interesting. It'd be quite interesting as another buzzword, but uh, it'll be, I'd be keen to see how he unpacks that specifically going forward. 
he gave announcements about housing. He talked about how he'll bulldoze through council's planning rules and regulations, which is quite bold and brave, but with a vision that it will bring a future and prosperity to a younger generation, change in kind of the way that the economy is done and all this sort of stuff. So the language of renewal is where I'm looking to see how that's unpacked post-conference. And I think this is something that we do need to pay attention to because I think for the Labour Party, they want it to be no drama, which means they avoid commenting on as many things as possible. They avoid tying their hands to commitments in terms of what may or may not go into their their future manifesto. But the challenge is is that, and they, they very much think, actually, if we stay calm, if we stay no drama, and if there's a bit of craziness in the rest of politics, that's good for us. We can be seen as the sensible people. The problem is, is a lot of people won't have a clear idea of what the party are standing for. There'll be little bits that maybe catch some attention. But I think the challenge for the party will be to present something a bit stronger so that the election, whenever it comes in the next 12 months or so, is not just to vote against something, but actually are do people have different visions of what renewal in our country might look like and what the parties will do to achieve that. Yeah, and I want to pick up on that decade of renewal phrase you were saying Alicia it was the decade piece I heard a couple of people commenting on as well he was pitching for two terms he was pitching for a significant change he was saying I'm here for the long haul uh, so that was uh, I think interesting and the house building is undoubtedly a pitch to the young new towns new houses lots of practical questions about how you bulldoze to use his phrase through the planning <laughs> constraints but that's a pitch to the young we know young people vote more labor old people vote more conservative again this polling is, is kind of being reinforced recently and the change in that quite a number of kind of comment pieces around that and one of the questions is do people shift over time and there's a question of whether it keeps happening there's no doubt this was a pitch to the young it was a pitch around opportunity and a pitch around homes because it tends to be old who say don't build nimbyism in our backyard and the young say where are we going to live so he was he was pitching there and he was pitching for a decade and I think there was more vision than I had heard the previous week at the Conservative Party conference. Uh, two other comments. One comment for me and then a question for you guys was um, Scotland, one of our colleagues, uh, keeps a close eye on Scottish elections and obviously Labour won a by-election in Scotland. That in one sense seemed like a, a little bit of a side story, but actually underneath that is the potential, I think, for Scotland to win, or sorry, Labour in Scotland to win 25 seats where they're down to none or a handful. I mean, the SNP basically have all the Westminster seats at the minute, and that could be a significant shift in terms of a Labour victory. And the one other story I want you guys to comment on is obviously Labour has had some historic issues around Israel, the conversation we're about to turn to, and it seemed they were able to navigate those better this week. So Keir Starmer was fairly clear on their position. Is that a fair, Danny? Yeah, I th well, I think on the, on the Scottish situation, Labour had recovered a little bit previously in the last election, but certainly if the results in the by-election last week were replicated across Scotland, you would see them winning a lot of seats, more than 25, potentially 40 out of the 50-odd seats. And that that is key because it makes the job of Labour gaining an overall majority a lot easier. In fact, without that level of victory will be really hard. Now, by-elections are hard to predict, so it's unlikely to lead to that kind of number, but it does make Labour's job easier if they're able to do well in Scotland. I think it was another area where Keir Starmer was seeking to demonstrate that the party had moved on from the past. Um, under Jeremy Corbyn, there were significant challenges around anti-Semitism, um, questions around uh, international allies and whether what 
Labour would do or say about such conflicts. And I think that was why it was almost inevitable that the Labour Party came up with really clear uh, condemnation of Hamas's actions, uh, really clear condemnation of the terrorist attacks that took place over the weekend. And then that then almost by the simplicity of their response, it drew a line under it and said, we're there. All of the stuff that went in the past, all of the, the problems, actually, particularly some of the, the Jewish members of the Labour Party and Jewish communities had felt about the Labour Party, actually, they were able to say, we're, it's okay for you to support us in the future. So it was, a, it was a strong comment on the international scene, but it also was trying to do quite a lot in terms of demonstrating that the party had moved on. Great. Well, look, you're listening to Cross Section. This is a podcast from the Evangelical Alliance. You can get in touch with us. You might want to remember this this week. It's crosssection.eauk.org because we are about to discuss all that is happening in Israel. And the chances are you might have some views on that that you want to let us know. Um, and because this is uh, such a hot topic and inevitably, I think, within the Christian constituency, there are even more deeply held views. Alicia, we'll go to you first for the sensible comments around what's happened. So, I mean, I don't think anybody needs to be framed in the story, but maybe just from your own perspective, your kind of reactions and how you've kind of unpacked the news over the last few days. I think my initial reaction was one of disbelief uh, from the weekend in the sense of all the kind of social media streams or, or social media videos that then media outlets were reporting on of young people at a festival partying completely oblivious to the incoming attack that was taking place and kind of the cries and the screams I think that that sense of evil being depicted I think we don't talk about that in society enough that evil does exist and I think the streams that were coming out from the weekend of just this brutality this senseless killing the kidnapping the capturing of that and feeling also incredibly helpless i'm here in essex i'm here in the united kingdom what can i do because that's that sense of activism and justice in me to alleviate pain or, or to see that end and yet being reminded that what i can do is pray and intercede so i think the humanity the human aspect of it of what started at the weekend and just seeing just the escalation of response both in language but also particularly from Israel in terms of its response in terms of um, the siege, which I know we're going to go on to. So I think for me, it's been really adjusting at the start of kind of just the sense of violence and evil uh, that is in the world and calling on the Lord in prayer for his mercy. So, yeah, just to even to piggyback on that, I think the evil piece, the, the number of content warnings I noticed on social media, and, and I was really torn as I reflected on the kind of, the ability to view things almost in real time or almost immediately afterwards. And there's a sense in which that's a benefit in the sense that we see the, just the horror of it and how graphic and how awful it is. But we're also incredibly visual people and there's another sense in which we can't get away from that. And then there is, uh, you, you can, very quickly you started seeing people saying, hold on, that's a clip from a previous thing. That's a clip from a different place. That's not, not the right clip. And so again, because we're such visual learners and communicators like, uh, you can get quickly lulled in by a piece that may or may not be accurate. And I think also for me, and then I'm going to come to Danny, it was just that dehumanizing language that appeared very quickly. This is barbaric. This is animals. This is subhuman at some of the points. And I can understand the sentiment behind that, but actually 
that's the challenge. We're naming evil that is being committed by humans against other humans. Danny, you, in your previous comment, did use the word terrorists, and that already has become controversial. So I want to just ask you, you described Hamas as terrorists, and that, that already appears to be something that's contested in this moment. Yeah, well, it's, I actually find it fascinating that that has become a point of uh, de debate. On one level, they are a prescribed terrorist organisation by the British government. So there's a level of kind of formal definition that could be relied on even. I think it's also that their, their actions are terrorist actions. They, it, These things get very complicated when non-governmental non groups uh, have roles and they basically took over Gaza in, I think it was 2006, 2007. They won elections, but then basically seized power and removed any of the, the democratic process in that place. So they are the, the rulers of Gaza. But I think their actions are also that of terrorists. And I think the BBC have got in quite a muddle, frankly, in trying to describe them as militants or using other language. And I actually heard on the breakfast news on Thursday that they were they they relied on the they are a prescribed terrorist organization. So I just wonder if they're amending their language slightly around that. So I think we we have to be careful with the words that we use. Recognize that all people, regardless of the actions they do, are human and they have dignity in that. But I think we we need to also be careful in terms of ensuring that our language doesn't downplay and underplay the significance and the seriousness of what people are doing and so when people are committing terrorist actions when hundreds of people are murdered at musical music festivals when dozens of small children are killed i, I think there is a strength to our language that can convey the seriousness of what has happened yeah, I find John Simpson was talking about it on social media, former, I think still, a BBC correspondent, a very senior. And he was saying, you know, people are not getting this. Of course, we can't call them terrorists. As soon as we do that, that takes a side. And I was like, well, the BBC take a side on almost anything. When we talk about abortion, they have a set of language they're prepared to use. They will call groups like ourselves pro, uh, uh, you know, sorry, anti-abortion rather than pro-life. They have a framing that goes on. And as you say, this is a prescribed organization. So neutrality is a myth and I think that's a I was really surprised by his comments and I found myself reacting as somebody who grew up in Northern Ireland where again we had a prescribed organization IRA were terrorists and they were described as such at that time somebody else had to voice their words they were not allowed to speak direct to the media we went through all of that I have to say I find it very difficult to hear him say oh no we can't call them terrorists because we have to maintain impartiality and I was like that's a false understanding of impartiality uh, very difficult. I want to talk a little bit about the history and then come back. So uh, you're all welcome to pitch in, but I am intrigued. Now, we'll go to the biblical history in a minute. I want to talk about the kind of, well, maybe the last 500 year history, but how we got. <laughs> Lots of people have different understandings of where we are. I mean, this uh, Israel and much of the Middle East was ruled by the Ottoman Empire from the 1500s onward until 1917. And that's when we got the kind of fairly well known, I think, the Balfour Declaration, the British Prime Minister said. We want to make an Israeli state, and that came to fruition post-World War I, 1922. We had the League of Nations, the kind of precursor to the UN, approving that state and the, de the declaration. And so the, uh, there was a state of sorts. But really, in post-World War II and uh, 1947, we have the modern Israeli state as an independent state approved by the UN. 
who were there at that point approving a partition, a two-state solution of a sort. The Palestinians didn't agree to that. And so we immediately moved into warfare. And anybody, I had to study this at GCSE history. Uh, coming from a conflict nation, we had to study conflicts. You had the Arab-Israeli war, where six Arab nations were at war with Israel. And then you had the Suez crisis, the Six-Day War, and the Yom Kippur War. And the reason that's very significant, that was in 1973, is this was 50 years, and I think one day from that, but it was on the Sabbath that kind of followed that, uh, that we had this uh, Hamas uh, invasion and uh, you know incident, that the terrorist incident that happened. And in between, we've had the intifadas, and we've had peace accords, and then more intifadas, which are essentially wars, holy wars, jihads, lots of different phrases are used. So this has been a permanent state of kind of warfare. And I don't think there's any sense that the, even the two-state solution that's been talked about is highly contested by all sides as to whether that's viable. And you've three contested areas, as far as I understand, the Gaza Strip that's in play right now, the Golan Heights up in the north, uh, which is much more Hezbollah and on the border of Lebanon, and then the West Bank, which is the most substantial settlement, where there is, broadly speaking, I think a, a slightly better kind of sense of relationship, and that's a bit that borders onto Jerusalem. Um, and this is the Gaza Strip, a piece of two million people in the south, and Hamas control that. As a, as a kind of political party to an extent, but also run a military and a terrorist operation out of there. And that's the bit that we're contesting right now. So there's my summary of the history. Uh, anything I've got wrong or anything you're going to disagree with, or how does that help inform us going forward, I suppose, as well? And then I want to look at the kind of biblical theological piece on this too. <laughs> um, you can never say that we don't cover all the angles on cross-section. Um, I think... Some of the language sometimes used about Israel and Palestine is complicated. So people sometimes talk about colonialism in that context. And there is a level to which the, the British did uh, create a state at the end or in 1917 towards the end of the First World War. And at that point, it had a minority Jewish population, a majority Arab population. Obviously, after the Second World War, the creation of the state of Israel as an independent state and a home for all Jewish people further complicated that. So you have all of these long-term legacies. Just one thing that I saw around Gaza yesterday, I think it was, Gaza is the size of the Isle of Wight. Just to help get some perspective on this, it's the size of the Isle of Wight and it has a population twice the size of Birmingham. So it is an incredibly densely uh, populated place. And I think that's where some of the high levels of casualties come from and also some of the high levels of poverty in that place and i think we may come on to this but i think there are prob there are clearly problems uh with the humanitarian needs in that place and there have been questions about aid to that region and whether it can get to the people or is it actually going to end up uh funding the organization so the the geography is intrinsically related to the politics and the conflict and that's that's almost always the case with these things but as you say there's also the the biblical theological thing which which makes this a point of interest and sometimes intense disagreement among christians that's pretty intense the disagreement i would say at times isn't it because of israel's particular status as god's chosen people and land is absolutely critical right throughout the old testament there is the promise of land there's the actual getting of the land, but that land is always a gift, I would want to say. I think the, the Hebrew word is Natan, it's, and the link between the land or the gift and the giver is, is critically important, anchored often around covenant, and that possession of the land requires faithfulness, 
and that the blessing of land was to be a blessing to other nations. There was an expansive vision in that. And then the New Testament is really intriguing on this because we have different language. Land is not as dominant a theme in the New Testament. Jesus is the kind of placing and the locus of the holy space. Everything is anchored on Jesus. And Jesus is what the land offered, but in a much more expansive form then. And so we have this question as to how important is the land? And I would say, uh, some listeners might be interested, I think there are three dominant kind of Christian schools of thought on this. Not everybody uses the language, but there are dispensationalists, probably a slightly smaller bunch. 20 years ago, they were definitely dominant. There are the seven dispensations and Israel is very important. And in the end, everything will be centered around Israel. And thus it has this very important place and it's so important it has the land. And so Christian, Christians who have that school of thought seem to see Israel and having the land as absolutely critical and almost support them on anything. Not quite, but I want to be trying to be careful here. You get the replacement theology, secessionism, that we, we Christian, the church today is the replacement, is the new Israel and is completely replaced. And therefore, everything that went to Israel now goes to the church and there is no interest in the land almost. And again, I don't want to caricature, but I'm trying to kind of put, put the simplified version of it. And I suppose for a, there's a, quite another dominant is the covenant theology. It's not a replacement, but the covenant has been expanded, that we as a church are brought into that wider covenant piece. And so some of what applied to Israel applies to the church in terms of those kind of covenant thinking. I think the reason those are important and to, to kind of give for a moment is if you think Israel is absolutely critical to everything going forward and the land itself, you will have a very strong view around Christian Zionism and some ideas around that. And if you take the other view and essentially think the church is to a large degree the replacement and to see Israel having a special place without in any way believing in Jesus, that would undermine the cross. And this does go right to the heart of Christian theology. So I'm not trying to unduly caricature those positions and hopefully I've done them a reasonable amount of just, but that's why it's so critically important is certain views on Israel go right to the heart of what we think Jesus did on the cross, which is right to the heart of our statement of belief and key ideas in Christian thinking. And we're not trying to take a view between those. So, so, so sorry if I haven't done your particular view justice, but we're saying that's why it becomes so divisive within Christian communities as to which view is dominant and therefore what we think of what's acceptable in this moment for Israel to do in response. I don't know what you guys reflect back on, whether you think that's helpful, whether you've heard that, or whether you disagree with it. I'm partly yeah, intrigued I... to, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm partly intrigued for you to know your colours to the mask of which of those three you, Peter, would come into. And then I'm just, I'm just intrigued. I'm intrigued. It's definitely going to get the emails flowing. <laughs> I definitely hold to a stronger view around the covenant idea that yeah. I think we've been engrafted into the covenant. I think what Romans 9 to 11 is doing is, is inviting us in. So I don't think we're replacing in a simple sense. That's too strong, the replacement theology. So I think covenant holds some of the tensions of the other two ideas together. I think Israel still has a status. They were called God, the, the, the founding for the, um, the, the early fathers, the, the Abraham and Isaac, like that there was something given to them. And I don't understand all that that means. But the land gift was always a gift and it was to be a blessing to other people. So there's always a missional edge to that. And, and there is an ethical requirement. So the prophets are always calling them out when they ethically breach. And if you breach the ethics, you lose the land. And that's a big question I have as to what's going to happen in Israel's response going forward. You're mm. only entitled to any claim to the land, as I understand reading the Old Testament, if you hold up to the ethics of looking after the widow and the stranger. And that is a deep challenge, I think, for us all as we read the text. 
And I, I think my my theological understanding is limited uh, in this area. So I want to be somewhat careful in what I say, but I think there is always a risk of trying to map theology onto politics. And actually, I think there's there's not just a risk. I think that is a place where if you look at the Old Testament, where it has gone wrong when we've used the world's ways to achieve the Lord's ends. And I think even if you were to hold to, even if you hold to a strong view of the, the land of Israel, I think you still, there is still a need to be really careful in how you do that and what that looks like and how we trust in God's purposes rather than in man's ways. And I think actually, I think there is a risk that you end up justifying actions in order to see something that you may believe is what God intends and may be what God intends and may be what happens. But actually, it said we should be trusting in God's purposes and God's ways. I think the other extreme is that we just remove our beliefs from the politics and the geopolitics and say, this is just a geopolitical conflict that needs to be dealt with. Let's take all of the the theology out of it. Let's work out how we can broker peace, how we can uh, keep as many people happy for as long as possible. And you you don't recognise the underlying things that are going on. So I think there are there are challenges at both ends. I, I would say that among younger Christians, there is a greater risk of not thinking about the, the theological components of it. That's a generalisation. There will be younger people that hold to a more Christian Zionist perspective. But actually, for a lot of people, I would imagine that it's more thinking, well, actually, how can you think through some of the theology of it? How can we think through what the Bible says and what that might mean for how we respond? So I think we, you need to be able to hold the two strands together, but also not let one become too dependent on the other. I think what this conflict has shown to me, and I think maybe the algorithms has been following what I've been typing, but I think something on social media popped up, an image I thought was so true and challenged me was that Christianity, it was kind of like a little kind of flag type thing uh, or kind of a picket fence. Christianity is deeply informed by Jewish tradition and culture. Like it is so shaped. And I think what this war this incident has shown to me is how much I've kind of neglected the lens of of the Jewish people of Israel even though it is completely referenced over and over and over again in the in the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament a Jewish people a called people a called nation and then when we come to the New Testament it's not forgotten but in Paul's letters as Peter mentioned in Romans He's talking about how the Jews and the Gentiles are to come as one. It was always Christ's intent that we would be one people, that we would be a part of his kingdom, that we would come together to see his kingdom realised on earth. And I think for me, what's really challenged me is how little I've appreciated the the historical working and the political working of what's happening in Israel uh, and more engaged in the theological. And I think also what's a challenge for the media is that they only want to talk about this conflict purely from historical and political lenses and not appreciate the entrenched religious identity that is on this this place, this land, this people group. And so they don't really touch into or speak to the importance of faith, the Abrahamic faith that three 
Jewish, Christianity and Islam all preside in this area and all religiously try to claim land um, and, and inheritance and ownership. So for me, I've been challenged by that. I think I would lean quite strongly towards in terms of Peter's three kind of theologies, that kind of the kind of new covenant. It's not about the land. It's about a people. I think God's kingdom cannot be confined to a place. I don't think he's coming for a particular nation. I think he's coming back for his people, his bride. And I, I think I've been reading and trying to chew over Romans 11 again, specifically the title in the chapter talks about Israel is not rejected. What does that actually mean? Uh, in light of Christ's resurrection and ascension? What does it mean to, for them to come to know him as Lord and Saviour? So I think that's where my longing and my prayer is in this moment, is to continue to pray for the people of Israel and Palestine, that they would know God's mercy, they would know his peace, they would know his, his protection in this moment. And I equally can be critical of how the Israeli government has responded in terms of what it's done in terms of the siege. I don't... I. It, it does anger me, it upsets me. I don't, I don't think it's right to cut energy, food and water supply in pursuit of chasing terrorist groups. So that's, yeah, that's where I am. Danny, on that international law point and on the kind of human rights point, you, we were talking about this, I think, earlier. Well, to be honest, I was mostly just distracted by thinking about quotes from the West Wing. The West Wing is now somewhat out of date, but there's a, a quote as a conversation between Leo, uh, the chief of staff, and President Bartlett. And they're talking about nuance in politics and nuance in international affairs. And there's a conversation about the centuries-old conflict in the Middle East. And one person says, it's a centuries-old religious conflict involving land and suspicions and culture and wrong, Mr. Pawdy said. It's because it's incredibly hot and there's no water. We need to pay attention to the nuance. But we also need to be able to speak into some of the, the blunt realities of the humanitarian challenges. So yes, it is a centuries-old historical uh, conflict with religious and political uh, components. But it is also something in the present with very real, immediate aspects so in terms of like and i think you can do two things at once you can absolutely condemn the actions of hamas but you can also then say there are significant humanitarian needs in gaza that need to be paid attention to and and i think in how we respond to that we need to not let uh, one blind us to the other so just as we wrap things up i mean they often say that the first casualty in war is the truth and uh, I was with a friend last night who's filming something from Troubles in Northern Ireland from 40, 50 years ago, one of the disappeared, Jean McConville. And there's still nobody really knows what finally happened in those moments and how she was killed. And that's, as I say, 40, maybe 50 years on from that moment and, and the killing of a woman by a terrorist organisation. And we still reflect back on that, if you like, within my own context. So one of the things that I've been just challenged to do is to slow down in, in posting about this because we need to fact check and we find out that some of the stories that are being led with maybe aren't quite as we understand them to be a few hours later. And that there is a theological and a biblical perspective on this, even as I, I think the only thing I've actually tweeted was an article by William Hague, just about some of the wider implications. And immediately somebody was in saying, ah, but you've missed, that's theologically illiterate. I didn't disagree. In fact, I just was interested in the geopolitical point that was being made. Israel was getting very on very well with Saudi Arabia and other Arab nations. And there seemed to be a wider sense of peace 
and Hamas don't like that and therefore potentially were disrupting that was Hague's point and I thought there was merit to that but again the pushback was hold on you're missing the deeper theological implications Hamas have a charter that says they do not want to see the Israeli state now they've updated that charter and whether they want to see the eradication of all Jews or they just simply don't want to see the Jewish state again truth is the casualty and we're having to I think slow down and process how we engage and it is I find it incredibly difficult knowing people in Israel, knowing Palestinian Christians, and each of us will have some friendships or understanding or relationships maybe in the places. And there is a line, we are all descendants of Abraham in this moment, or sorry, the promises to the descendants of Abraham. That's what the biblical promises are often too. those in covenant relationship with God. And that goes to the heart of the matter. Who, who is in covenant relationship with God? They will inherit the whole world. It is always more than a strip of land in the Middle East. There's something more than that that doesn't say that's not important, but there is a bigger claim, I think, for us as Christians to be going after. And we have to acknowledge that EA membership has a variety of views on this. We don't have a view as evangelical lens. It's not something we're asking people to subscribe to. So we're trying to articulate that there are a variety of views around this issue. And we want to acknowledge that. Uh, and we do want to say that this is a very difficult situation. It's probably going to continue as we've seen the response from Israel. There are going to be, I suspect, more questions raised about the proportionateness of that response. Proportionality is the correct word, I think, of that response, because that's a just war term and that's a, an international human rights term as to whether it's justified and whether it's proportional in what they're doing. And the cutting off of water and electricity is not proportional. Uh, some of the bombing raids, it depends, and you have to make an equation around that. And those are going to become the conversations, and we'll probably reflect more on the ethics of that and what Augustine had to say about just war. <laughs> but what we do want to do as we finish is to pray, as Alyssa said, in this moment. This is something that we want to be leaning into. Uh, our friend Fred Drummond, our colleague, did say something in that. But before I pray, Danny has one point to correct or to help you with. <laughs> no, I, we, we are going to pray, and I think that's really essential. But one thing I did want to bring into this conversation was some of the more domestic uh, impact of this that we have seen demonstrations in defense of the actions of Hamas and there's been questions about the police how the police are responding to that I think on one level and to some extent we need to defend freedom of speech and freedom to protest but support of a prescribed terrorist organization is an offense and the police should be responding to that. So I think we always, when we talk about free speech, we navigate some of the dimensions of that, that we do support free speech, but that's not without any limits. So I think there needs to be a response to that because some of the consequence of that has been the threat and the impact on Jewish people in the UK. It is normal for Jewish schools to have security guards. The fact that they, the, there is a, a security organization solely designed for the protection of synagogues and Jewish schools should be a shock to us. The fact that it's norm anyway for there to be security guards should be a shock. The fact that that is, has an increased need that Jewish schools have been telling pupils to take off their blazers or to not need to wear their blazers so that they don't have the insignia that would identify them. That is shocking. And I think we need to recognise some of the potential trends that it could lead to domestically as well as internationally. I, I've, I've seen it commented, I think it's correct, that uh, Saturday was the deadliest day for Jews since the end of the Holocaust. So I think that component of it, so yes, it's an international geopolitical conflict. Yes, there's Christian theological things, but there are also significant 
um, like direction towards Jewish people. And I think there is a need to speak up against that particular hatred in terms of how it manifests itself, both in Israel and Gaza, but also um, domestically in the UK as well. And yes, let's, great reminder. Let, and let, let's pray. Great reminder that truth-telling cuts both ways. So absolutely, we're slowing down to make sure we are telling the truth. The truth-telling requires us to call out exactly what you've done, Danny, and, and to name those injustices. And we want to consistently do that, not even on sides, because this is more complex than sides in every situation that we see. And then we want to absolutely pray into those situations. So we are going to end this uh, podcast with a prayer. Uh, it's our colleague, Fred, who wrote this. So I'm going to read that just as we, uh, wherever you might find yourselves, uh, hopefully this will be a helpful moment to recenter ourselves in God. God, rich in mercy and love, we pray for the people of Israel and Gaza, for the innocents, broken, seared, frightened, confused. God who weeps with the weeping, have mercy. We think of those who have lost their lives and those who grieve. God who meets us in the darkness of the valley and in the stillness of the night. O oh God, meet with the bereaved. For families shattered and children torn, O oh God of mercy. To the injured, bring healing. To the bereaved, bring comfort. To the frightened, bring love. To the weary, bring hope. God of grace, we pray for an end to bloodshed. May peace come quickly. We pray that peacemakers may find a voice and offer a way forward. Father, have mercy. Lord Christ, have mercy. Holy Spirit, bring hope. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, we hope this has been helpful. That We understand we won't have got everything right. Uh, give us grace as you email, but feel free to email. Uh, bless you, and we will see you again next week. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media, or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.